The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So if you haven't been with us, we take this time now to study God's Word together. We have actually been in Genesis chapter 1. We started at verse 1, and we're going to go through, verse by verse, this amazing opening of the Bible. We're taking it verse by verse, word by word, because that's how God wrote it. That's how He intended it. Every word matters. Jesus said that when he was talking about the Old Testament. Jesus possessed the entirety of the Old Testament in his day intact, uh, very similar to ours, except ours is in English. His was in Hebrew. But it's the same Bible, the same Word of God. And Jesus considered the Old Testament, including the book of Genesis, the Word of God. He considered it authoritative. He considered it inerrant. And that every jot and tittle or every word mattered in the scriptures. And Jesus made many references to the book of Genesis, and he took it literally as God's truth. Particularly in Genesis chapter 1, we've been seeing how God brought all things into creation, how everything began. So believe it or not, look at Genesis chapter 1. We're actually going to cover verses 29 to 31 today. And so we are now on day 6. So far it says that God has created everything in the world in six days, six real days, as Moses, who wrote Genesis and wrote Genesis chapter 1, 1400 B.C., as he was moved by the Spirit of God, was very specific in some things that God intended him to record here. And one of those things that Moses is specific about is what was created on each day and also that these were real days. So after day one, it was uh, one day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day. Now we're going to be seeing what God created on the sixth day. We've already started that. We've looked at what God created on the sixth day. And we saw verse 24, just by way of reminder, that God God created all the land animals on the sixth day, the beginning of the sixth day. Then after he did that, uh, we saw in verse 26 and following that God saved the best for last in terms of his creation, and God created the first two humans, Adam and Eve, uh, on day six, probably early on in day six, after he created the land animals. Then you could read chapter 2 to see more detail as to how that went about as he created Adam first and then Eve. And then after God created Adam and Eve, he immediately told them their purpose for existence, if you recall from last week. God gave humans a purpose for life. That's the answer to that universal question. Why am I here? The Bible answers that very clearly up front in the first chapter of the Bible. You are here as a human being to represent God on the earth. And we talked about that last week. God gave a purpose statement to Adam and Eve the first thing when he created them. And that mandate or purpose still is true today. Thousands of years later, God still expects human beings to represent him on the earth, to rule over the earth, to be good stewards of the earth, to control the earth, to manage the earth, to subdue and subjugate the earth and all that is entailed from a godly and biblical perspective. As I said, that purpose hasn't changed. So that was last week. Now we're going to look at verses 29 and 31. And the emphasis here in 29 to 31 is God deliberates among himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune God is talking before creation and eternity past, which boggles the mind and decided to create humanity. And that's why verse 26 said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make human beings in our image. And we talked about what it meant to be 
made in God's image, made uniquely, made like God, different from God, but like God to reflect God. And every human being, male or female, it doesn't matter who you are, every human being born into this world is sacred and has the sanctity of life. So we also talked about that. So God creates the first two humans. He creates them good. They are without sin. Created them to reflect his image, male and female, the first two humans. Blessed them. Gave them a purpose for their existence that is still intact today. And then the next thing he's going to do is he's going to bless them even more about how they're going to be provided for. God is the great provider, and that's what this short little passage is about, verses 29 to 31. It introduces us to God not just as the creator, but also the the extravagant, gracious provider of his creation. And that's the point of emphasis here, and we're going to look at that. And he's the gracious provider of human beings in verse 29, but he's also the gracious provider of the rest of creation, all living animals. And that's clearly seen in verse 30 and then expanded upon in verse 31, and then the rest of the Bible even addresses that issue. So let's go ahead and look today at just these three verses, the profound truth that God is a gracious provider. It was true in the very beginning in the first week of creation. It's been true all throughout history, and it's even true today that God, despite whether you know him or not, God is a gracious provider. It's his very character. It's who he is. As a matter of fact, that word providential or providence, the word provide is in that word, the providence of God. What is that? That's the ongoing gracious provision of God for his creation, not just in sustenance and the things he gives you to eat, but also clothing and other provisions of life. God is a gracious provider. Let's go ahead and look at the details. First, let's go ahead and look at verse 29 together, God's personal Provision. I put personal provision here, emphasizing that human beings, Adam and Eve, are made in God's image. And the main thing that means is that human beings are persons. God is a person. Humans are made in God's image. Therefore, we are persons. Animals are not persons. Plants are not persons. And personhood implies relationship. And God has, with Adam and Eve, a, a very personal and intimate relationship with when he created them. And He provides for their needs very graciously. So after he provides for them, let's go ahead and look at verse 29. I'll just read 29 to 31, focusing on God's gracious provision. Then God said, after he created them, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. Verse 30, And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky... And to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. God's gracious personal provision for Adam and Eve. Let's look at verse 29, just at some of the highlights there. Direct your attention to the beginning of verse 29. My Bible, which is the New American Standard in English, begins with the word then. If you have the ESV or the NIV or some other translation, I don't know off the top of my head how your verse begins, but that's how it should begin. That word then is actually very important. It's actually in the Hebrew text. Very specific. Remember Jesus said every jot and tittle matters? Well, the word then is actually a conjunction in the Hebrew text. It's the first letter that Moses wrote in this verse. And it's attached to a Hebrew verb, and it means something. And 
Moses, when he wrote chapter 1, he wasn't making chapter verse breaks and whatever else, but in the first 31 verses of chapter 1, Moses did this about 43 times using the word then, that, that little Hebrew conjunction. It's one letter, and he attached it to the front of a verb, a verb usually in the past tense. And so if you had a good English Bible, you should see about 40-some-odd times in Genesis chapter 1, usually at the beginning of the verse, then, 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 then God said, then God saw, then God did, then, then, then there was evening, and then there was morning, day, the third day. Very important. That's basic Hebrew grammar. If you know Hebrew, you see it. It makes a difference. It's there. It's relevant. Well, what's the big deal about a little conjunction attached to the front of a past tense verb in Hebrew? Because uh, the New American Standard has then in verse 29, then God said. But if you look at verse 31 in your English Bible, it should say, then God saw. Oops, my New American Standard doesn't have then God saw. But it should, because it's the same Hebrew construction, and it needs to be on the beginning. So the King James Bible actually does a good job and has that conjunction translated, but it should be there in your English Bible. It's not in my New American Standard. So sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. What is the point, McManus, in all this minutia? Well, the point is this little Hebrew conjunction attached on the front of a Hebrew verb that it's in past tense over and over and over again, tells you what kind of genre the literature is. And clearly, the genre of, Hebrew, of Genesis chapter 1 is narrative. Narrative. Historical narrative. That is a no-brainer if you know Hebrew grammar, Hebrew syntax, and you know Hebrew. Why does that matter? Well, because just not long ago, I was in a public setting with a bunch of Christians. Somebody was up there, a teacher among Christians, and just made a passing reference to the book of Genesis and said, and of course, we all know Genesis is poetry. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, it's not. I didn't say anything. But I'm like, no, no, it's not. Genesis is not poetry. Genesis 1 through 11 or 1 through 3 is not poetry. It is historical narrative. The Jews have always known that because they know Hebrew. That's their native language. And this idea that Genesis is poetry is very new, very recent, very novel, and came from liberal Bible scholars who had a hard time with miracles in the Bible. And they started to say this. And most of the, by the way, the, most of these guys were like Germans. They, they weren't Hebrews or Jews. And they're making these pronouncements about the genre of Genesis that the Jews have known since the time of Moses for 3,000 years. This is narrative, historical narrative. It is not poetry. What is the point? Main point, this is history, and you can read it and count on it as history, just as much as you read the Gospel of John. It's history. So it's a small detail, but very, very important. Genesis 1 is not poetry, and that's just one example of why that's true. But moving on to the greater truth of the verse, then God said, behold. Now, this is, an, this, again, words matter. Behold, this is a specific Hebrew word. It's an emphatic word. It's like an interjection. And Moses is being emphatic He's raising the alarm, and he's really saying, hey, pay attention, really pay attention. I mean, we should pay attention to every word from God, right? Every word in the Bible from God matters. But there are times where the Bible gets emphatic, and this is one of those cases. Behold, so something unique or different is going to be stated here or very important that's set apart from the rest of everything Moses has been saying about creation up to this point. It's behold, and he's going to go, go into detail about God is not just the creator. He is the gracious, amazing provider. 
And so that's why he's using that word, behold. Behold, check this out. Look at how amazing God is as the gracious provider. Not only did he create Adam and Eve, he's going to provide for them abundantly. And he does. That's why that little word is there, behold. And then God says, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be food for you. So this is God's personal, gracious, abundant provision for his people. This is the menu that God originally gave Adam and Eve to eat. So if you were to ask, what did Adam and Eve eat? Were they vegetarian? Were they, did they eat meat? Those kind of things. Scripture is very clear they were vegetarian. It's right here. The vegetarian diet. And it was a gracious one. And basically, if you look at those terms right there, every plant and the other one, every fruit tree. So they have had at their disposal all fruit and all plants. That they, so the variety is just absolutely amazing. And that's how gracious and amazing God is as a provider. It wasn't just one thing, which will happen later, actually, in the wilderness. Remember, under Moses, it was just one thing was manna. Oh, manna again. Oh, manna again. Oh, and then the people started complaining. Where's the variety? We want to go back to Egypt. But here in the beginning, boundless variety. Every plant yielding seed. Every fruit tree is at your disposal. And it's not just here in the garden. It is all over the earth, the middle of verse 29. Absolutely amazing. And God knew how he created human beings in the, in the beginning, what their physiology required. Physiologically, Adam and Eve were different than we are today. We know that for many different reasons. We know that Adam lived to be, get this, over 900 years old because that's what it says in the Bible, and I, I believe it. I really believe that Adam lived to be 900 years because that's what the Bible says. 930, then he died. So that's a difference. We live on average between 70 and 80. His physiology was different than ours in some respects. He had a different diet, Adam did. God said, you will be a vegetarian. Or he doesn't say, you can't eat meat. I mean, just God decreed. Here, all these plants, they're all for you. All this fruit, all this wonderful food. God is the gracious provider. So Adam and Eve and humans originally were vegetarian. That doesn't mean they were. it's more spiritual to be a vegetarian. So don't make that connection or bridge that because that is not true. We know that from Scripture. But there are people who think that. But God actually has at times changed the diet throughout history. We see that uh, in the Bible. So Adam and Eve were originally vegetarians. It's everything they needed. Everything, all sustenance and nutrients were going to come from what God had provided, for the exception of that tree that he said, don't eat from that one. That was the only exception. He had plenty of other trees to provide for his needs. And so for a period of time, humanity was vegetarian. So in other words, they're not going around killing animals and eating them. But there will come a time in history where God will allow that to happen. If you've got your Bible there, you can flip to Genesis chapter 9. Fast forward to the days of Noah and the ark. Noah's in the ark for a year. Noah gets off the ark with his seven family members. It's a new day. It's a new era, and God gives new rules. You know, before the flood, things were different. After the flood, so I'm going to change some things, and here's some things I'm going to change. So he changed several things. Uh, the promise regarding the rainbow and one of the other changes is how human beings will interact with animals. Before the flood, animals weren't afraid of humans, but now there's animosity between animals and humans. That's a new thing. And the other thing that God changed after Noah got off the ark was his diet. You've been vegetarians all the way up until the time of Noah, from the time of Adam to Noah. Noah is about 2500 B.C. That's when the diet changed, chapter 9 of Genesis. 
God bless Noah, be fruitful, fill the earth. Verse 2, the fear of you and the terror of you as a human being will be on every beast of the earth. That's new. Uh, land animals, for the most part, they're going to fear you. Every bird of the sky, they're going to fear you with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Yet into your hand they are given. Well, what does that mean? Well, verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. There it is. That's where God changed the diet. From now on, you can eat meat. That must have sounded totally bizarre to Noah. Wait, what? I've been eating plants and fruit for 600 plus years, and now you want me to kill and eat these animals? Noah knew what it was to kill an animal and sacrifice it because there were sacrifices going on as God required. But eating it? Totally different. So he was going to have to do this in faith. So this is where meat eating entered the human race by God's decree. Animals will be food for you. Just as I give, I give to all of you, just as I gave the green plant in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam and Eve, the restriction, verse 4, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, it needs to be killed. Don't eat the blood because the life is in the blood. So if you're going to eat a fish, don't just grab the fish and start chomping on it while it's alive. Don't do that. Kill it. Bleed it. Better yet, cook it and salt it. Tasty. So, so God now has expanded the menu in the days of Noah, and that's when human beings became meat eaters by God's decree. Well, what could they eat? Any living thing. Said it. It was universal. You mean crabs? Yes. You mean the pigs? Noah could eat a pig? Absolutely bacon. Oh, man. He's probably living it up. Can you imagine what happened in the days of Moses when Moses lived in Egypt? They probably had pig and bacon all the time and all that greasy food. And then God changes the menu again under the days of Moses. So 2500 B.C., God says, you can eat all the animals and bacon. And then 1400 B.C., God comes to Moses and said, oh, I'm going to change it again. I'm going to do a new thing. So in Leviticus 11, God says, here's the animals you can eat. Here's the you can't eat. If it uh, divides the hoof and chews the cud, you can eat it. If it doesn't do both of those, you can't eat it. Sorry, you can't eat pork anymore. I wonder what Moses was thinking when he wrote it. Okay, God. But anyway, he just shrunk the menu. And then God also specifically mentions a lot of those scavengers on the bottom of the sea that they could eat up until that time. And he outlaws several of those. And he says they are unclean. You're not allowed to eat those anymore. So God changed the diet. So originally they're vegetarian. Then they go to, man, all you can eat uh, meat, like that restaurant where you go in and you eat like 16 courses of different kinds of meat. Oh, that is, that's my favorite restaurant. And it comes with like a $1,000 price tag. But anyway, and then God changes the diet again under Moses to separate the Israelites from the rest of the Gentiles. That was the whole point. It's unclean. In other words, you need to be different. And so your diet's going to be different as you reflect something different about Yahweh God. And that went on from 1400 BC until the time of Christ. And Jesus comes along. He's a Jew. He honors the Mosaic Code. He abides by it perfectly. He doesn't eat pork. He doesn't eat scavengers. But then he does something interesting during his public ministry in Mark chapter 7. It says that Jesus declared all food clean. What does that mean? Basically what he was saying is what defiles a human being is not what goes in their mouth. If you eat pork, that doesn't make you a sinner. What defiles you is what comes out of a man's heart. Thus, Jesus declared all foods Clean. In other words, there's no animal, pork, whatever, that's inherently evil if you eat it. It was only evil because God decreed it. They, they abstained from it for a period of time. So preliminarily, Jesus said all foods are clean in Mark chapter 7. And then 
God starts the church and it's a new era, new things. We're not abiding by the Mosaic law anymore. There's a higher law and that's the law of Christ. And God brings believing Jew and believing Gentile together in the body of Christ. And then there are many new things. And that's why he gives us the New Testament. Here's all the new laws and new ordinances of the people of God and the community on planet Earth called the church, the body of Christ. And one of the new things was the diet. And the diet was liberated for believers and people in general. And that's in Acts chapter 10, when an angel or God from heaven gave a revelation to Peter, the head apostle. And Peter saw in this vision animals coming down and even unclean animals coming down like pigs and scavengers and those kind of things. And Peter looks at those and he's afraid and he probably got sick to his stomach. And Jesus or God from heaven said, Peter, arise, kill and eat. Thus, formally, God declared all those unclean animals as legitimate food for the human race. And so for the last 2000 years, God has graciously provided all fruit and plants for us to eat and also uh, all those animal foods as well. So that's very important. And it's considered good. And that's why in the book of Timothy, Paul says, and he reminds them that when you're about to eat, number one, you need to thank God for that food. Number one, he is the provider. Number two, keep in mind that if you, as a Christian, abstain from certain kinds of foods and from certain kinds of meats, and then you turn it into a spiritual thing, saying it is more spiritual to be a vegetarian. Not only does Paul say through the Spirit of God, that is wrong, he says it is demonic. Wow. Demonic. Don't think that way. Christians don't grow in spirituality based on what they eat or drink. It's what's in the heart, right? And God has given us tremendous freedom in terms of just basic provisions and, and the, the creation that he has given, he has provided that for humanity. God created animals and plants for man, not the other way around. Very important to remember that. So eat to your heart's content. Whatever it is you have on the menu, just remembering God's provisions is not to be eating the blood because that's also in the book of Acts, chapter 15. But before you eat, you thank God. God, thank you for being my generous and gracious provider it's awesome so that's god's personal provision to humanity then he goes on uh point number two and that's verse 30 god's natural provision not only does god provide for the human race he also provides provides for all the rest of creation the birds in the air the fish or the swimming ones in the sea and that's god's promise verse 30 into every beast of the earth so that's all land animals and to every bird of the air and to everything that moves on the earth. Actually, the, the fish aren't even mentioned in this verse. They just, because they're not on the earth, God provides for them. But every creature that either lives on the earth or finds its food on the earth, which would be true of birds, that's why birds are mentioned here, flying creatures. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it, it was so. So God is the gracious provider for all of his creation. It's amazing. Out in the jungles, animals are living. Well, who's going to feed them? It's like right now, I've got a puppy dog at home. Well, who's going to feed her at lunchtime? Who's going to feed her at dinner time? Not so out in the world and through nature. God is the provider. He provides for his creation. For countless beings. And he did that in the beginning and it was perfect. And again, the animals at that time, they also were vegetarian. In the beginning, they weren't eating meat. So lions weren't going around chasing cute little lambs in the beginning before there was sin. Eating lambs and those kind of things. They were vegetarian. 
So lions were eating plants that God had provided. The Tyrannosaurus Rex was eating plants and wasn't eating other creatures. There was no death. It's very clear here. They're vegetarian. In the very beginning, that was God's purpose. That was intent. And there was enough food for everybody and everything. That would change, though, with time. And we'll see that in Scripture as we move along, especially in the book of Genesis. But that's God's natural provision for all of his creation. And Jesus even used this and reminded of this in, in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he teaches to pray, Lord, the disciples said. We, we don't know how to pray. You pray different. You, you're unique in your prayer life. We're so mechanical, and you seem to have a personal relationship with the Father. Jesus teaches us how to pray, so he did. He gave a model prayer, and in that prayer, part of the prayer that we're supposed to pray to the Father is, Father, give us this day our daily bread. Father, give us this day our daily provision. That's supposed to be an ongoing prayer that we pray. God, be my provider. On the one hand, we know that God is the provider. He will graciously provide. He will always provide. He provides when we don't ask. And at the same time, Jesus said, you need to ask every day. Father, meet my daily needs. Provide for me. Thank you, Father. It's a part, it's a way we pray and it's part of worship and recognizing God as the wonderful creator, but also the great provider and sustainer. And then in that same sermon, Jesus is teaching publicly and he's, and he's three times he tells the crowd of thousands, don't worry, quit worrying, stop being anxious. Really, there's three imperatives there in that whole passage. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. What were they worrying about? Well, they were worrying about their daily provisions. They were worrying about where they would live. They were worrying about food. They were worrying about jobs, economics. Basically, they were worried about their provision on a regular, ongoing basis. There was a mass of people there, thousands. And three times he said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Why? Because God is faithful. God's the provider. He's not going to neglect you. And he gives an illustration a couple times. He says, look at the birds of the sky. God provides for them. He's going to provide for you. God loves you more than he loves birds. Look at the lilies. Look at how beautiful they are. They are provided for. God gives them everything they need to grow and to flourish. God loves you more than he loves plants. God is going to provide for you. Trust him. Don't worry. And he's referring to creation. And this comes right out of Genesis chapter 1. God's ongoing regular provision for nature. And then let's go on to point number 3, and that's verse 31. So God's personal provision for humanity, God's natural provision for the rest of creation, and then finally... God's beneficial provision, how good this provision is that he's provided for. Verse 31, God saw, then God saw, then, continuing in the story sequentially, then God saw all that he had created or made. So now God steps back, okay, I've created everything, all that God had made, had made in the Hebrew, had made, verse 31, had made, perfect tense, past perfect tense, completed action, he is done. He's done creating all things at this point. He is finished, Fine. it's done. Creation is not ongoing and continuing and evolving. That's the point. Very specific with the Hebrew verb, verse 31. All that he had made and completed when he made it, it is done. And behold, get this, another emphatic statement. Remember God kept doing things and then he'd pronounce it, a blessing on it and say, it was good, verse 4. God created light and then he said, it was good. In other words, it was perfect, exactly the way he wanted it. Verse 11 or verse 10, then God made the earth and he said, and it was good. And then in verse 12, he made plants and he said, it was good. And then in verse 18, he separated the light from the darkness. He said, it was good. And then verse 21, he created all the birds and the fish. And he said, it is good. And then in verse 25, he created the land animals and said, it is good. And now he looks at all creation, everything that once was tohu and bohu, empty and formless. Now it is 
totally inhabited, perfectly formed, without sin, without the intrusion of fallen sinners, the curse of death, Satan himself, it is perfect. And the terminology that Moses uses from God at the end, in the middle of verse 31, it was very good. That's God's divine assessment of the original creation. What does this tell us? I think it's clear from Scripture. At this time, when God finished all of creation, Adam and Eve, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, it was very good. It was perfect. It was exactly how God wanted it. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no curse. This totally eliminates the possibility of the truth of the gap theory between verse 1 and 2. Because God looked at everything and it was very good. It was perfect. It was exactly the way he wanted it. So there is no death up to this point. How do we know that? The scriptures comment on it. Even Genesis chapter 2 talks about it. God says, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So death is a result of sin and disobedience. Sin and disobedience has not happened yet. The creation was perfect. There was no death. Death is the consequence of sin. The soul that sins, it shall die, Ezekiel 18. Book of Romans says the same thing. The consequence of sin is death. And even more specifically is the book of Romans, where it just says point blank that sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam. And death resulted from sin. So where did death come from? Death is the result of sin and disobedience. You have none of that in Genesis chapter 1. And unfortunately, there are Bible teachers and so-called evangelical Christians who try to tell us, no, there was sin and there was death and there was predation and there was bloodshed and there were carnivores in Genesis chapter 1 and it was fallen and it was cursed and it was messed up. That is just not true. And there are drastic consequences when you think that way. The main one being you're tampering with the clear, clear teaching of God's word. Don't add to his words. Proverbs chapter 30. Don't take away from his words. Revelation 22. Just take it at face value. This is the way Moses wrote it because this is how it was true to history according to God's spirit who was leading him. Beneficial provision. Very good. Everything is perfect. Not as perfect as it can be. Adam and Eve haven't reached the ideal place yet because they are still vulnerable. They are susceptible even though they're perfect and without sin adam and eve at this point in history they are vulnerable susceptible finite and the ideal for humanity from god's point of view isn't adam and eve in the garden of eden it's like some people say that uh can't wait to get to heaven when all things go back to like genesis chapter one in the garden of eden no 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 we do not want to go there it was vulnerable and susceptible to sin temptation death and everything else no What's the ideal of humanity? Luke tells us in the gospel, Jesus, the ideal for humanity is resurrection man. The resurrection body after the likeness of Christ, a glorious, eternal, perfect body. That is God's ideal for humanity. So that when we get to heaven and are resurrected and perfected for all eternity after the pattern of Christ's body, revelation is clear. There is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. Can you imagine? Absolutely amazing. That is the great hope of the Christian life and following Jesus Christ. Perfect resurrection likeness after the glorious body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Moses goes on and says, God declared that it was all very good in the beginning. Then there was evening, then morning, the sixth day. And God has finished his creation. 
And you can imagine Moses is writing this to two million Jews who had gone through slavery in Egypt. And they're like scratching their heads like, what? It was perfect. It was very good. There was no sin. There were no problems. What happened? That's what they're questioning. Then what happened? And then Moses gets his chisel out or whatever. Well, let's go on to chapter 2. And he tells the rest of the story. And we have the same question. If it was perfect, then what happened? Because this doesn't reflect reality at all today. Well, let's close with this as a reminder of God's great provision, even for us today, for those of you who know Jesus Christ. Let's close with this. Philippians, if you have your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 4. This is a promise for Christians. This is a promise for those who know Jesus and follow him and believe that he was the God-man, uncreated, eternal, one with the Father and the Spirit, came down here, took on a human body, lived a sinless life for 33 years, willingly went to a cross and got crucified or executed, and he never sinned. But he did it willingly, and while he was on the cross for six hours, he absorbed the fury and the wrath of a holy God, his Father, as God poured out his wrath on Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. And Jesus accepted it. He did it purposely, and he was absorbing that wrath so that sinners who repent might have total forgiveness and be adopted into the family of God. And it's the work of Jesus that saves us, not our own work. And so when you believe in Jesus, his work who he is as savior and you become born again and you're you become a christian you get adopted into the family of god you're a child of god you have eternal life you have total forgiveness of sin you have the spirit living in you it's amazing it's the greatest news of all and so paul's writing to christians and this is for us as well these promises he says don't be anxious i know life is hard verse six life is hard but don't be anxious trust god pray to him you know jesus pray to him trust him He's going to strengthen you. Verse 13, Paul said, I, I'm like you, fallen man, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That promises for us as well. And then finally, in verse 19, Paul reminds all of us that God is the great provider. He's still the great provider, as he was in Genesis chapter 1. And my God, who is your God, if you believe in Jesus, will supply. That is a promise, guaranteed. My God will supply all of your needs. Not some of your needs, all of your needs. Not all of your wants, but all of your needs and all of my needs. All of your needs according to his riches abundantly perfectly gloriously according to his riches in glory in christ jesus can god's people say amen let's go ahead and pray to the father the gracious provider father we thank you for this day and our time together we thank you for the church the body of christ we thank you for the universal church but also the local church like our church family here grace bible fellowship god thank you for this reminder In Genesis chapter 1, very simple. You created the world in the beginning in six days. You created humanity last as to reflect you and to rule over the earth. And thank you for providing for Adam and Eve, but also human history. Thank you for being our provider today. Thank you for physical provision. And most of all, we thank you for spiritual provision, salvation in our glorious and blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we give you all the glory and praise for that, and we commit our day and our week to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. And just a quick reminder for our members, as soon as we're done singing, uh, no chit-chatting members, just head on over, and, and we'll meet you in uh, on the other side down there by the fellowship hall for our annual meeting. Thank you for listening. 
Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.